Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz journeyman and pianist Oren Evans. He's a very talented journey jazz soul and a wise man. Over the course of our conversation, he talked about what he learned from Kenny Barron, the story behind his latest album that hit number one on the jazz charts, who his heroes are in the world of jazz, and exactly who he thinks he just may be, along with many more surprises. Dig this interview, my friends. Man, thanks for taking a little time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I'm going to go ahead and dive right in here. I know you're a busy man, but I want to get kind of an idea of what's been going on with you lately. Staying busy, number one. I mean, uh, besides uh, besides traveling, and, and I just finished a tour with David Murray, um, I've also been working on uh, booking and curating series. And uh, I'm doing one now in Philadelphia, at a place called South, a brand new restaurant. Tonight we're actually uh, presenting uh, Johnny O'Neill, and we, we got Buster Williams coming in, and uh, it's actually another part of the music or the business that I uh, I really really enjoy because even though Philadelphia is a hop, skip, and a jump from New York, um, there's a there are a lot of artists that I've been exposed to uh, while I'm in New York that are not being presented here in Philadelphia. For whatever reason, some of them don't have a super big audience. Some of the venues just don't think of them. Um, so it's really fun doing that. And uh, and at the same time, promoting this last record uh, that just came out and trying to do more with that. And also the Captain Black Big Band. So really just hustling and, and doing all that I can to, to stay uh, present, inspired, and excited about the music. Right on. And, and so you've touched on several things I want to follow up on. I want to get to the evolution of oneself, but through your personal evolution, you were born in Trenton, New Jersey, raised in Philly, as you talked about. Talk to me a little bit about your experiences growing up that led you to love jazz and to appreciate the craft and devote your life to it. I don't think, you know, there was never really one moment in my life, uh, but basically I grew up in the arts. Um, this is my father, a playwright, my mother, a singer. So the music has always been around me. Uh, and and then I had to take piano lessons. I mean, it was just there. But um, I moved to Philadelphia when I was around 12 years old. And coming from Trenton, New Jersey, um, it was a shock because the neighborhood that I moved into, um, basically, it was nothing but, uh, but uh, retired folks on that block. So I came from a block in Trenton, New Jersey, where I had friends and we played uh, hide and seek all day. I left the house at 10 o'clock with my bike and didn't come back till it was time to come in and moved to a neighborhood where there were, you know, all senior citizens and no kids. It was actually one kid that lived next door to me for a brief second. Um, and with all that, I found the piano again. Even though I'd been studying in Philly, the piano was just something I had to do. Um, and then when I moved to Philadelphia, I said, well, let me just became my best friend again and playing with my keyboard and and all those things. And I um, was re- it was recommended that I go to a school in Philadelphia called Gerard Academic Music Program, which was a um, middle school and high school. And when I got there, I, I met other musicians and I met other people. And that's when the, I guess you could say the bug bit, and that, that was the, the moment, you know, where I said, this is really what I want to do. This is, um, I want to be a musician, you know, but I, I wasn't, convinced uh that it was going to be jazz at that time it was just i wanted to play music 
and 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 really create and um the idea of composition really stuck with me you know and 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 not so much jazz and improvisation at that time but just composition in general and i also enjoyed singing i sang in the choir there so there were so many little things that happened at that school in philadelphia that started the process yeah yeah well let's go let's go to what's happened most recently with your album the evolution of oneself with christian mcbride Talk to me a little bit about how this album came about. It's a great album and, and kind of the the evolution, so to speak, of this creative process. The record came about maybe 20 years ago, honestly. Um, that was when I first met Kareem Riggins. And, of course, I knew McBride, but not totally. We weren't, you know, he had graduated two years before me. So he was already in New York doing his thing, but I knew of McBride and he was just this thing that everybody wanted, you know, everybody wanted to hang with and play with this person and this musician. And um, so once I moved to New York, I called him about getting on my first record back in 1995 and he wasn't able to do it and neither was Kareem Riggins. So fast forward to literally almost 20 years later, I decided to try again. <laughs> you know, I I had uh, talked to McBride about recording over the years, but we just couldn't get it together. And um, then it came about, and and this was one that all the, all the pieces, you know, fell in. I had just started playing with Kareem again on his own in his band, so we had that connection, you know. And it just it was really the timing, but it was something that I had been working on for the last twenty years. Um, not directly working on it, but something I said, hey, when this, you know, when it when the time hits, this is one of the projects I want to do, you know, along with some other projects and some other people that I would love to document with. As far as the material, the material was, was um, mostly material that I had been performing already uh, with two, maybe two or three tunes uh, that that um, were written specifically for this project. Um, and I had never recorded some of them, and some of them I had recorded. But my philosophy on that is, um, you know, creating new standards. You know, I, I, we can record Autumn Leaves a thousand times, or It Had to Be You, or whatever. And and I, I'm not against that. I love those tunes, or even tunes that our cont- contemporaries composed. Um, but I'm not against recording some of my tunes again, especially since the way that Kareem Riggins plays them is going to be totally different than Nasheed Waits or, or Byron Landom or, you know, the way that Chris McBride plays is going to be totally different than Eric Rivas. And I enjoy seeing what they discover in those compositions. So, you know, as far as the material for this record, it, it was pretty much based on people in my life and tunes that I really wanted to hear these gentlemen perform. So speaking of approach and philosophy, at Records University, you studied with Kenny Barron. How did that experience shape how you approach music and how you created? It didn't, you know, and that's not a diss to, to Kenny Barron, but um, my my time at Rutgers was more about people, the business, life. You know, I would sit with Kenny Barron during my lessons. We'd just talk about the industry you know, talk about different people in Philadelphia. Uh, and during that time, I was also curating. That was the beginning of me curating series. So one of the first uh, bands that I actually presented 
with Kenny Barron. Yeah. We're able to bring Kenny Barron down to Philadelphia. So um, I don't know if that time with Kenny Barron uh, had any influence on how I look at music per se. Like if I play things that, um, you know, may remind people of, of Kenny Barron, um, except the importance of swinging. I mean, he definitely uh, instilled that in me, just the importance of um, making sure things are swinging and where you find that swing. And it's not necessarily tangible, but once you find it, you find it. Uh, and the experience, Ralph Bowen was also teaching there at that time, and, and his approach to theory is kind of, really would help me uh, compositionally along with Ralph Peterson, who was a student there um, with, you know, much, much earlier with, with Bowen and him, but I uh, was able to meet him in Philadelphia. So those things and, and that way, but I don't think it was necessarily a musical thing, if that makes sense. It was more just life and, and how this business, you know, how to, to succeed in this business and, you know, watching Kenny Barron teach for years and then watching him go back on the road, all of those things. Um, and then musically, I just grabbed and I continue to just grab from everybody around me, you know, um, even my peers. It's like, oh, how are you approaching that? How are you approaching that? So that's yeah. how I look at the music. Um, and, and hopefully the things that I'm grabbing from each, uh, each of these people, it, it comes across uh, as something that's good. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you've had 25 as a leader starting out in 94 with the Warren Evans Trio. So I want to ask you, over this career that you've had that's been full of production, what do you see has been the most prolific period of creating for you? Right now, I hope, or, or it hasn't happened yet, you know? I hope. Yeah. I, I, right now, I feel extremely creative. Um, but not, <laughs> and I don't mean that as far as, compositionally uh, or, or like I'm playing a different kind of way. I mean, creative in different ways in which to, to present this music, different ways in which to, to play it with different people, different combinations of instruments. Um, I feel, I, I feel really feel drawn as I always have to, to vocals and that aspect of being a part of my music. Um, but I'm hoping that tomorrow and, and, and next year and, and next month and, you know, continues to bring me opportunities where I, where I feel like, wow, this is it. This is it. And yeah. then tomorrow comes and I'm like, oh, no, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> so I really I haven't had that moment. I've had, you know, it, it definitely felt good to, 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 to have a record that, that made it to number one on the jazz charts. And, and that feels good. But I mean, and this is not directed at, uh, you know, radio or anybody else, but so what? You know, I mean, we plenty, plenty of people have had number one records, uh, but now what? Now yeah. what? You know, that was last week, and everybody was on Facebook, oh, yeah, you got number one record. Now it's this week. You know, I still have to continue to do what I do and be present. You know, that's the most important thing. Yeah. So over your career, you performed live many times. How do you approach a gig today versus in the beginning? Were you nervous in the beginning? Was there what was what's happened over the years for you to get to where you are in your comfort level? I think I've always been comfortable, and 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 that I mean, not that I didn't get nervous about material or that that I'm meaning you know to sound like an arrogant jerk, but due to the fact of 
growing up in the household that I did, you know, watching my father direct plays and 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 my brother and sister are performers. There, my brother is a poet. My sister's an actress too, and a, now a school principal. So we've always stood in front of people and presented. I used to do storytelling as a kid at the local library, and I would read to kids. So being in front of people never really made me nervous. Um, playing music because I got into it, putting my own bands together and playing my music, I wasn't really that nervous, you know, because it was like, oh, this is my thing. Um, and I enjoyed being on stage, you know. I mean, certain times when I'm playing, you know, music that I'm not that familiar with or music of uh, other people, there may be moments where I'm like, okay, let me make sure this is right and make sure. And I don't know if that's nervousness, but it's just, a, you know, a desire to get it as quote-unquote right as possible. Sure. But, and I've had that that kind of approach to the music all my life. It's kind of like a kamikaze pilot. Just like, head, you know, I'm going in, going in. <laughs> and and I, I kind of approached that. I, I just, I can't let this music or this business or whatever you want to call it, I, I, I made a point for it not to stress me out. And I, you know, there was a, there's always a point where the people who play it with you may stress you out because they may not, they may not understand you. They may not understand your approach to the music. They may not understand this interview. And, and, and when those people come along, I've had, I've learned over the years to just keep moving and to do what I do because I am comfortable because I do feel great on the bandstand because I do enjoy what I do. And I'm blessed not to be it, you know, no offense to a, to a nine to five, but I'm blessed to be, this is my nine to five playing music. Yeah. So I try not to let anything get in the way of that. And I've, I've pretty much started that of the, the days of playing at blue moon when I was 20 and 21 years old in Philadelphia. So if I get nervous, that's when I have to remind myself, man, you know, you're blessed. You're blessed to be able to play this music. And you know what? If it sucks, so what? Like, try yeah. it again. You know, yeah. there, there, there's luckily, you know, uh, luckily there's there's no one that's going to come up to me at the end of the gig unless it's the band leader and say, look, you're fired. If that's the case, cool. There's another gig out there for me. Yeah. You know, so I try to just enjoy what I'm doing and, 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 and have a good time. Yeah. Right on. So you just mentioned your album was at number one on the charts. In 2010, you got the Pew Fellowships and the Arts Award. Has there been an award that you received, not not the best award, but an award that just threw you off guard? You're like, wow, man, that was that, that's cool. I didn't expect that. Or it's just the unexpected award, so to speak. Well, definitely the Pew. Definitely the Pew because uh, – oh, that reminds me of something. I'm glad you said that. Definitely the Pew because – I didn't know about it, you know, um, yeah. and that was a great, and it was great to get it in a city that I'm, you know, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. So got something from, from Philadelphia because I mean, I'm I'll honest, I'll be honest. I mean, I really love being from Philadelphia. You know, as I sit here now, my door open and, and, you know, and I, I like my neighborhood. I mean, I, I miss living in New York at times, but I, I love Philadelphia. I love, um, you know, the, the experiences I've had here growing up. But honestly, um, at this point, it hasn't, I, I think it, it hasn't always 
appreciated the fact that I'm here living in Philadelphia and keeping this, doing my job to keep this place on the map um, by just playing music all over the world, like Chris McBride, like Kevin Eubanks, like a long list of other people. Uh, but I feel sometimes that Philly hasn't done me right, for lack of better words. So yeah. the the pew was a it was a great start to feeling a little better about how Philly has shown me that they appreciate how much I appreciate being from here. So we touched a little bit on Kenny Barron, but I want to know who has taught you the most about music in your life? Technically speaking, as far as music per se, like when I, I mean, like, you know, things like theory and uh, time and rhythm and things like that. I honestly have to say Ralph Peterson and Ralph Bowen, mm-hmm. um, who I've learned the most, uh, you know, from those point of view, like just technical things involving music. Um, as far as the business, it's pretty much, I've checked a lot of it out, just, you know, watching other people and how they handle themselves. I learned a lot from Bobby Watson. I learned a lot from being in his band about the business. You know, there's tons of people that have been blessed, you know, to perform with that I've learned a lot, but especially Bobby Watson. Um, And then the other part, I just apply it to life. You know, I I mean, I just related to life. You know, like you learn to manage people, uh, not so much how they, you know, some people were were so on, you know, like, I like the way he plays. I like the way she plays. You know, sometimes I'm like, well, who are they as a person? Do I get along with them? I might not like everything they play, but if I get along with this person, we can figure out a way to play music together. And and that just comes from, you know, real life and trying to apply those things uh, to the music. Yeah. So you've mentioned a lot of real big names in jazz there. So I want to ask you, who would you consider your jazz heroes? Anybody and anyone that has continued to play this music at a high level and didn't give up, you know, and that list can be, you know, Gary Bartz and Brandon Marcellus to Jackie Byer to, you know, a long list. I don't have one hero per se. I just admire and I appreciate people who continuing to do this despite the way the industry has changed over the years. Um, two of my peers, uh, Wayne Escoffrey and Jeremy Pell, I have a lot of respect for them because I've watched them take their careers into their own hands and start booking their own things and, and you know, creating their own recording projects and making sure despite what the industry says, like, you know, you're waiting for a record date. You don't have to wait for a record date anymore. You do your own record date, you know, or you put your own tour together. Um, So those people, I have different heroes for, for, for different reasons, you know, I mean, but mostly anybody is able to do this and continue um, to be out there in the street, giving, giving back and playing and, you know, I mean, Eddie Henderson, who I, Al Foster, it's just, you know, Mickey Roker. It's a lot of people that are still doing this that I've I've really enjoyed watching them and their process and, and their journey. Yeah. 
you know, coming from the land of Coltrane, there's there's always kind of this magical realm that people would, would love to see him live. And we're coming from Kansas City. I would love to go back in time and see something on 18 and Vine, whether it was Charlie Parker in the early days. So I ask you this. If you get into your nostalgia area of your brain and think about what would be one show that you could go back in time and see, who would you want to go see and where would you see that show? Man, that's a, yeah, woo, that's a heavy <laughs> one, man. That's a heavy one because this is going to seem weird, but well, I was going to say, luckily with YouTube, we we're able to kind of go back. <laughs> yeah, we are, man. <laughs> and, and, and and see a lot of those shows. Um, and, and there's some people I'm, I'm like, I'm glad I didn't see them because maybe I wouldn't have liked them as a human being and I didn't, you know. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm glad I didn't get to see this show. But I would, I mean, there's a lot, man. I mean, the first one that just came to my head now is probably some, if anybody's listening, they'll say, why do you say that first? But uh, I would have loved, and I'm not a concert goer. I'll be real. I don't like concerts um, in big venues. I don't like that. Yeah. I would prefer to see whoever I wanted to see in a small room, a small club, very intimate. Not that I need to talk to them or be near them. I just don't like you know, like everybody's going to see Stevie Wonder now. I have no desire to see Stevie Wonder. Not because I don't love Stevie Wonder. I just don't want to be one in a like in a million in a big old order. I just that's never been my thing. Now yeah. Stevie Wonder shows up at like you know the Village Vanguard and does an unplugged gig. I'll be there in a second. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so with that being said, I've never been a real big concert goer. So. The venue would have to be somewhere small and intimate, and I would definitely love to 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 see Jaco Pastorius. To have seen Jaco Pastorius play, um, I mean, this is Michael Jackson in a small, intimate place. Yeah. You know, Lena Horn. These are all for different re- man. Sammy Davis Jr. These are great entertainers that I would have loved to. Have Nat King Cole, you know, yeah. but uh, so that's you know now you get me all excited. That'd be great to see like some of those people in a really small, intimate place where you know I feel special about seeing them. You know what I mean? Yeah, without a doubt. I'm gonna ask you this question about jazz, why you love jazz. But before that, I want to ask you: you perform live, you've met many people and been all over the world. Do you have a good jazz story that's safe for radio? Just a really good something that pops into your head and you're like, man, that was cool. Or that's something that you remember really well. Um, I do. I, I remember being on the road, driving to New York to go do a record with someone I really, really ex- uh, respected. And and I was supposed to be on the record date. I had done the rehearsal and done a few gigs a few days before the record was live and, and it was on our way to the studio. I was driving from Philadelphia to New York and on the way to that recording, I received a phone call from a friend of mine. I says, man, such and such didn't call you. I don't know why he didn't call you, but man, I just heard through the grapevine that you're not on that record date. And I'm like, what? Yeah. He didn't like what you played during the rehearsal. And so you're not on the record date. And I said, okay. And I turned around and I came home. The guy never called me. We're actually really good friends now. I won't say his name. (laughs) 
but that story, I didn't turn around and say, screw him. I didn't turn around and say, man, he doesn't know what he's talking about because obviously he did. I didn't, I didn't play his music at that time. And this is almost 15 years ago, the way he wanted it played. Since then we've played together since then uh, I've learned that I don't have to play with everyone. You know, I can respect their music, but I don't have to play with them. And it may be a better situation for them to play with me. doesn't mean I'm not a good musician. I may just not, their music may not speak to me. I may, the way I play might not speak to them. So that jazz story and why I chose that story is because that's the most, one of the most important things that I've tried to, to deal with, with this music. It ain't personal. Yeah. It is not personal. The day you start taking this, this personal is the day you should quit. The day you start worrying about what everybody else thinks about your playing. The day, you know, in any other life, you can, any other career, you know, hey, we're going to have to let you go. Okay, cool. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go get another job. It doesn't mean you might get another job in that same business. You know what I mean? It just means that that wasn't the situation for you. Don't take it personal. And if you want it to be the situation for you, shed. Practice the music. If you don't, don't sweat it. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. As a man that's dedicated his life to jazz and obviously very passionate about it, why do you love jazz? Because jazz loves me. <laughs> <laughs> and and the freedom that exists in the music, the confined freedom. <laughs> um, but really, I don't know anything else, you know? It, it, it's like, and when I say that, I don't mean you know, I just this music spoke to me on 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 whatever day it was and and I've continued to have that conversation. I mean there are, there are other genres of music that I love and I even enjoy playing. Jazz has been good to me, you know, although there's some things, there's some issues with the industry, there's some issues with the with that word. There's some issues with so many things, but um I don't think I wouldn't want to do anything else. I wouldn't want to do anything else. So it's been good to me. Uh, it continues to be good to me. And even when it's bad to me, I realize it's not bad to me. It's not personal. It's just a bad moment that's going on in this mu- in the music. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So of all the people that you've touched from the stage and then you're recording, these people have perceptions of who Warren Evans is, your family does, your friends do, who you played to at at your last live gig. I want to know who you think you are. Everybody has their version of who you are. Who do you think you are? Someone that's always evolving and growing, trying to. And um, if I answer that question with a, you know, with a definite answer, then I'm not evolving and growing because who I am today hopefully is not who I'm going to be tomorrow. That's perfect, man. Warren, this was a pleasure, man. I appreciate you opening up. Give me an insight. It was very fresh and unique. I, I dig it, man. Great, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Oren for his brilliance, his honesty, and fighting for jazz from the stage and beyond. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things 
Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.